You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Hey, if you got a Bible or Bible app, whatever it is you do, 1 Corinthians 9. Let's go there if you don't mind. We'll start in verse 19 here in just a second. 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse uh, 19. And uh, as you're turning there or getting there, let me just say a couple things. Uh, my name is Wade. I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. And been really excited to be with you guys. Uh, listen, uh, it's interesting how things come around. I know a lot of you just uh, come to Overflow and you uh, enjoy what it gives you and it pours into you. And, and for a lot of you, God has uh, really changed you. But you, you don't realize uh, how far uh, really the arm of this reaches out. Uh, I actually spoke, I'll talk about it later on. Uh, at a thing called Overflow at UNC Wilmington for about three and a half years. And it was interesting because I've known Jared Wood for a long time. And it was at one point he was going, hey, I speak at the, I sing, lead worship at this thing called Overflow in Denton. And I go, hey, I'm at Overflow in like North Carolina. That's kind of cool. And little by little, I started telling some of the students there to get and watch and see what you guys do in the podcast. And so it's amazing how things happen and they pull around. It wasn't too long after that uh, that I met Austin and met him uh, through Jared. They came to hear me on the road one time speak and I hung out with Austin one day, really got to know him and love him. And uh, it was just last year that I was going through kind of a hard time in my ministry. And he uh, actually stepped in and spoke for me at an event in Dothan, Alabama. He went with Jay Wood and he said, hey man, I've got this for you. Don't worry about it. You stay at home with your family. And it's amazing how that comes around that he calls me out of nowhere and says, hey man, I'm going to be leaving, moving to Iowa where it snows 8,000 days a year. And uh, he said, hey man, can you step in and speak for me uh, in March? And I said, bro, it would be my absolute joy. So listen, I'm I'm excited to be with you guys. And uh, hopefully if it goes well, I think I'm back in a month. So that'll, you know, (laughs) for some of you that could be good. Some of you, it might not be good. That's okay. We'll figure it out as we go. Listen, here's the deal. I travel. Really, I've traveled like 200 days a year for like 20 years. I go from place to place, conference to conference, college thing to college thing, and I speak. It's what I do. Uh, and, and it's weird for my family because this is how I approach it. I mean, uh, the, the idea of my family is I come in, I'm home for four days, and, and then I leave for six days. I'm home for eight days, and then I leave for two days. And there was a point to where my two girls, uh, they're 14 and 10, uh, but they got a little older, and my wife said, hey, we need to go on like family vacations in the summer. Now, that's weird for me because I speak at like youth camps and college things all summer long. So I thought, okay, we've got to figure that out. And because I do so much in the summer, I said, I'll just do as much as I can and take like a week and a half off and we'll do it. And that's what happened. I mean, I was speaking in Dallas for like six days. I came home for two days, went to Chicago for five days, came home for 12 hours and got my family some bags. We went to the plane and gave them our bags and we went on vacation. It was about three or four years ago in London and Paris. And when we landed in London, we found out that the royal baby was about to be born. And me having two girls, they thought it was the greatest thing ever. Kate had gone to the hospital, and, and we're like in the airport. And she was like, Daddy, do you think she's going to have her baby in the five days that we're here? And I was like, well, unless it's the longest labor ever in the world, I promise you she's going to have her baby while we're here. I've never seen anything like it. And when I say that, it was pandemonium over there. Everybody was geared up for this baby to be born, and they had been camping out in front of the hospital for a month and they were sitting out there waiting for some baby announcement and I didn't even know what was happening I thought it was more than that and there was a point two days into our vacation that some guy walks out in front of a bunch of cameras and he had a sheet of paper and he said royal baby was born eight pounds three ounces thank you for coming and that was it 
And I'm thinking, y'all camped out for a month for that. And, and that's fine. I thought maybe it's over at this point. I train for and run marathons. I've been doing that for a long time. And I was doing a run through Hyde Park there. And I came over by Buckingham Palace a couple of days later. And it was weird. There were like at least 10,000 people in front of the palace. And I was like, well, this is weird because they're not doing uh, any like tours in the palace that time of year. And I didn't know what was going on. And, and I looked and saw that they had taken that baby announcement, that sheet of paper, one sentence, they framed it, put it behind the gates at Buckingham Palace, and there were 10,000 people in line to take a picture of one sentence. And I was like going, okay, everybody in the world's crazy but me, right? That's the deal. And, and so I looked to the left, and I've never seen paparazzi everywhere. And when I mean it, I mean like from America. You've got the NBC Today show over there. You've got the CBS Morning Show. And I was like... What in the world is going on here? It was a couple of days after that that uh, my wife and I decided we were going to go eat on the other side of Hyde Park, and we went with our kids, and, and I said, hey, you know, you know, maybe if we go over there, we can have a chance to see the baby, because it was over by Kensington Palace, which is where Will and Kate live. And I talked them into walking that far, because they might get to see the baby. Of course, I was lying, but um, <laughs> here's what happened. We, we, we came out from eating, and as we got back into, right, right into Hyde Park by Kensington Palace, we saw all the paparazzi had moved over there. And of course they're waiting, right? They're waiting for the first picture of the baby. And I thought, well, that's fine. That's fine. They're doing that. And as we started to get near, like the first one was Sky News. It's like the largest news organization in Europe. It's like CNN over here. And as I started to walk close, you started to see all the lights come on. Something was happening behind all of these paparazzi and news stations. And lights were coming on and, and excitement was going. And this man from Sky News looks at me and goes, Sir, excuse me, sir, sir, could you come over here just for a second? And I was like, me? He was like, yeah. Is that your family with you? Yeah. Hey, are you from America? I said, yeah. And he said, listen, here's the deal. They just announced the royal baby's name three minutes ago. And we'd love to get your reaction to that name live on camera. <laughs> now... You don't know me well, and they don't know me well. And I looked at this guy, and I said this, you don't want that from me. And he said, why? I said, man, my first reaction's pretty raw. I'm kind of in your face. And so, you know, why don't you ask, Eden was like 10 years old at the time. Why don't you ask my 10-year-old daughter? He said, but no, I want to get your reaction to it. We're going live in three, two, one. <laughs> Lights come on. He looks at me, and he's like, we've got the Morris family here from Birmingham, Alabama. They're from across the pond, is how he puts it. And he said, here's the deal. Uh, they just announced the royal baby's name. And here we are live in front of millions of people. And he said, we've got Mr. Morris. And he said, the patriarch of the family. And we'd like to, we'd like to get your reaction to this. They said, uh, Mr. Morris, here's the deal. They announced the royal baby's name. And the royal baby's name is George Alexander Louis. What's the first thing that comes into your mind? And I said, man, I really don't want to do this. And he goes, why? I said, just ask my 10-year-old daughter. She's smart. I mean, ask her. And he goes, but I want your response. I said, I really don't want to do it. He said, why not? I, I don't want to be that guy. I'm always that guy, right? The one that says the wrong thing. And I said, I just don't want to do that like on TV. And then he fronts me a little bit and says, I don't understand why as a man you can't give your opinion. I said, so what did you ask me? You want to know my first response? He said, yeah, you want to know the first thing that came to my mind? I said, yeah. I said, you just said the royal baby's name is George Alexander Louis. That means his initials are gal. He'll be made fun of the rest of his entire life. <laughs> now, you can imagine this guy live in front of millions of people and the look on his face. And the only thing he knew to say with the microphone in front of my, like my face was, and now let's talk to your 10-year-old daughter. <laughs> 
The problem was, you can understand, my 10-year-old daughter, she's always been like a 40-year-old in a 10-year-old body. You know what I'm saying? She's like the smart kid. And he looks at me after I just said the dumbest thing ever in the world. And he says, and now let's talk to your 10-year-old daughter. And he said, what do you think about the royal baby's name? And my daughter at 10 looks in the camera and goes, I really feel like the name George is appropriate. And she starts to give a history of the name George. <laughs> He's like nodding at her, doing all this stuff. And I'm thinking, Who, who's this kid? She finishes her interview. It's fine. We're walking across Hyde Park, and we're talking about it, getting back to our hotel. And as we get into our hotel, it's the truth. We walk in, I turn on Sky News, and they do a loop. Like every 30 minutes, they show the same thing for 24 hours. And for 24 hours, every 30 minutes, they showed my daughter's interview all over Europe. But they didn't show mine. And that's the point I'm trying to make to you. I mean, I, at that point, I was offended because I thought, wait, I spent as much time as she did on her response. And here's what I thought in that moment. They showed her response because her response was what we would call the appropriate response. It's what they wanted to hear. They didn't show my response because I didn't say what they wanted to hear. And it wasn't the appropriate response. And what we know in life is this. Nine times out of ten, what gets heard is the appropriate thing. Here, here's what I want to say to you. The question for me was this. So where do I go tonight? You've had Austin here for a long time, and he's poured into you, and he's done amazing things. One of the greatest preachers I've heard. He's awesome. But the question is out of the box. Where is it that I go with a group of students that have looked up to this guy that says, man, he is a great leader for us, and I know that he's doing what God wants him to do, but here I stand on this stage, and as I had a chance to pray about it, I thought, well, maybe... 1 Corinthians would be it. Because as you have a chance to be in college, and some of you right out of college, we always come to that point in life where we start asking questions like this. So what are we going to do now? Right? I don't mean just because Austin leaves. The question is for your life. What are you going to do now? And the interesting thing is 1 Corinthians answers a lot of those things. Matter of fact, it was Paul, if you don't know this statement, he made this statement. He said, all things are permissible for me, but not all things are right for me. What happened in 1 Corinthians 9, that he has to have a chance to give a response to that because the Corinthian church took that to the nth degree. They said that, oh, you're right. I'm a Christian. I can do whatever I want to do. I've been forgiven. And there's nothing God's not going to forgive. So I can say whatever I want to say, and I can do whatever I want to do. And Paul wrote a really long letter called 1 Corinthians, and here's his answer. No, I don't think that's the way it works. Seriously. Because a lot of people take that and run with it. Even though we are forgiven, he was the one that tried to make the point, all things are permissible, but it doesn't mean I do whatever I want to do. So he had to write a response to them to say, listen, when you're in that moment of trying to figure out what's next, know that there is responsibility that you have. And it was in that that Paul tried to get their attention. Here's the great thing about Paul. Paul was never the guy that said, you're wrong. He was never the guy that just went crazy on people. He usually would say things like this, um, pray as I pray. He was always trying to get their attention and be nice about it, even though he was bold. But he was trying to answer that question with this response. So I want to show it to you. 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 19. He says it like this, though I am free and belong to no man... I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many people as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. 
to those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those that are under the law. To those not having the law, I became one like not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. And he says, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might reach some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games, by the way, he's talking about the Olympic games, going on way before this. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do what we do to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I don't fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and I make it a slave so that after all has been preached to others, I myself might not be disqualified from the prize. It's almost like he's reminding himself of his own statement. All things are permissible, but in the idea of living in the world of temptation that's pulling us away, but not all things are right for me. And he tries to give an answer for how it is we're supposed to live. Because in other words, when you come to the place that you become a Christian, when you come to the place that you say, God, I really am ready to be who you've called me to be, at some point you've got to put some structure to that. It's not just about running aimlessly. He said, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm doing something for a reason. And so the question I had was this, what would happen if we left here tonight? I mean, seriously, all of us and said this, you know what, we really are ready to be exactly who God wants us to be. In the midst of trying to figure out my major, in the midst of trying to figure out what I'm going to do next in life, in the midst of trying to figure out, should I get married? Should I date this person? What am I supposed to do in just living the Christian life? And I thought, well, maybe, maybe he gives us an answer. So if you're taking notes, write down just a few thoughts, if you don't mind. If you don't take notes, act like you are. It makes you look holy when you do it, right? Yeah? I mean, that's how we do things in church, right? Here's what he's saying. If we leave this place and say, God, we really want to be who you've called us to be, and we want to have structure to that, he says, number one, you've got to live a life of conviction. Just write down the word conviction. That's the first thing he says in verse 19. He says, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many people as possible. Do you know what Paul is saying in that statement? He's saying, um, all things are permissible for me. I can actually do whatever job I want to do. I actually can talk however I want to talk. I can do what I want to do. I can say what I want to say. But he says this, if you want to know what I'm convicted about in life, he says, in the end, for me, I want to win as many people to Jesus as possible. That's, that, that's what I'm about. He's trying to grab our attention to say this, what are you convicted about? In other words, if you don't have usually a strong conviction about something, it usually means you live for nothing. You're aimlessly going nowhere. And Paul was saying this, if you want to know how I do this thing, in the end, I want as many people to hear about Jesus. He's saying this, in the end, I don't care how much money I make anymore. That's what he's saying. I don't care how popular I am anymore. All I care about is that people hear about Jesus. Conviction. I'll say it to you like this. My uh, mother-in-law, God bless her soul, died about two and a half years ago. And it ripped my soul out, man. When I say that, understand for me, and I don't, I don't do testimonies, but like from 4 to 17, I had four different stepfathers. 
At 17, my mom looked at me in the face and said, I don't love you, and we haven't talked since. Interestingly enough, my mother-in-law was the first woman that truly loved me. And there was a point to where she comes home from a doctor and said this. He told me I'm going to be dead in two months. I didn't even know how to respond to that. I mean, I just started saying things like, hey, you've done so much for me. I mean, is there a trip you want to go on? Because I'm taking you on that trip. Is there anything you want to do? I mean, I'm going to do it for you. And she looks at me and goes, no, I, I think I've traveled everywhere I want to travel. I think I've done everything I want to do. And she looks at me and she goes, huh, but I need you to know something. I go, what's that? She goes, there's not anything I really want to do, but there's one thing I've done. And I go, what's that? She goes, I've made a list. I go, a, a list? She goes, wait, I've made a list of every single person that I missed an opportunity to tell Jesus about. She goes, wait, you know how it is. When you're in high school, you're kind of not really sure who you are. And you know if you die tonight, you're going to heaven. But your friends are kind of talking. to, And you know there was that point where you need to tell your best friend about Jesus. But you, for whatever reason, you just didn't do it. She goes, you remember that time you go on like a family vacation or family reunion. And you hear your cousin talking the way they shouldn't be. And you just know in your heart, you need to say something to them about Jesus. But for whatever reason, maybe you didn't have time, just didn't do it. Remember that time you were working and you knew for a fact, even your boss, you need to say it, but you felt intimidated. She says, wait, here's the deal. I've got two months to live. I've made a list of every single person that I missed an opportunity to share Jesus with. And before I die, I'm going to share Jesus with every single one of them. It's conviction. My daughter, Eden, in a very different way, was different. She got saved when she was 10. Now, that's weird as an evangelist because all my friends, you know, you know how evangelists lie. You know what I'm saying? I mean, my kid got saved at two months old. You know how that is. I mean, you know, I was just the guy that never, listen, I never tried to shove it down my daughter's throat. My deal is this. I need my kids to own the gospel, man. I don't want them living for daddy. You need to live this on your own. I was actually preaching in Texas. She got saved in Alabama. I mean, I got the text. Hey, your daughter got saved today. I was pumped. I, I sent that to my my friends, my daughter got saved today, and all of them were like, sorry you couldn't be there for her. <laughs> That's what they said. But I know that sounds weird to you. I, I wasn't even offended by that. I didn't care how my daughter got saved. I just wanted her to be saved. That's all I cared about. I remember coming back and talking to her about what happened, and she was telling me, and it was a beautiful story. But here's what I figured out. Man, in one moment, she became a Christian, went from death to life like that, but she wasn't a good evangelist yet. It was two days later that I remember we were praying together as a family. I've been celebrating my daughter, man. And then I heard her prayer. It was so amazing. You know, I'm like, you know, I prayed, mama prayed. And it came to her, and she's sitting next to her, on her knees, next to her sister that's four years younger. Trinity was like six at the time. And she's praying, and she said, God, thank you for saving my soul. God, thank you that you've forgiven me of all my sins. God, thank you that I get to go to heaven. And she says, God, I pray for my little sister Trinity that she would become a Christian so she will not go to hell forever. <laughs> now listen, Trinity got fired up right there, man. Now, you, you ever had that moment where you're kind of sitting there and in your prayer you go? <laughs> Trinity looks up and she just started to walk out of the room. And I went to her and I go, Trinity, what's up? What, what's wrong? She goes, she doesn't think I'm a Christian. And I looked at her and I said, but honey, you're not a Christian yet. It's, it's okay. And she goes, but she thinks I'm going to hell. And I looked at her and I go, well, you are. No, I didn't say that. 
I did not say that. But I, here's that part. I'm kidding. I actually had to go to my 10-year-old, and I'm not kidding. I had to sit down with her and say this. You can't be telling your sister she's going to hell every day. Like, you can't do that. And as I did that, I'll still never forget it. Eden looked at me, and her, her eyes got real puffy. And she started to cry, and she said this. Daddy, I won't say that to her anymore. But I want her to go to heaven so bad. Conviction. Students, let me say this. You don't have to be dying in two months or just be saved for two days to be convicted to tell others about Jesus. Let me say this statement. My hope is this lands on you. In the end, all that matters is Jesus. I get it. I'm living like you do. I got to pay bills. There's a lot of distractions that I have. In the end, all that will matter is Jesus. And Paul says this. You want to know my conviction? I want to tell as many people about Jesus in the end. He said, you got to live a life of conviction. But then he goes further if you're taking notes. And number two, he says, if you decide to live a life of conviction, number two, then you need to learn connection. You need to know how to connect to people. That's what he starts saying in the next four or five verses. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. To those not having the law, I became one like not having the law. To those living under the law, I became like one under the law. To the weak, I became like I was weak. Now hear me when I say this. Way too many people take that out of context. I mean, that's a whole sermon series right there. But I've done that before where you're quoting it, and especially to college students, it's interesting because to those not having the law, I became one like not having the law. That's usually when they just go, see, I told you it was okay to sin to reach sinners. No, no, that's not what he means. He's saying this. He's saying because I'm so convicted and I do whatever I can to reach as many people as possible, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. He was saying this. I do whatever I can to understand the people I'm trying to reach. In other words, Paul had the greatest message of all, the message of Jesus Christ, you and I have the greatest message of all, the message of Jesus Christ. It's the same message. But here's what I've learned in life. It doesn't matter how great our message is if they're not listening to us. I mean, y'all are going to go to Beach Week next year. I, I get it. You reach Beach Reach or whatever. What, what are you doing? Reach, reach the beach for crying out loud. Let's do that, okay? You're going to go out there and win. hopefully you have a chance. Come in contact with, here, here's what I would say to you. It's an awesome message to have, but if they don't realize that you actually care about them, nobody wants to hear what you have to say. They really don't. And I'll tell you where I learned this more than anything. I learned understanding what it means to relate to people at Overflow in Wilmington, North Carolina. It was interesting because I used to speak for the church. The church is only 15 years old. And I would just speak for my friend that's the pastor. They had a college guy for 10 years. And he left suddenly. And they said, hey, wait, by the way, can you, can you speak to the college students Tuesday night? <laughs> sure. And I did. Hey, can you come next week? Yeah. Can you come the next week? Yeah. For three and a half years, I went up there. <laughs> Listen, if you go up there, you find out Wilmington, North Carolina, especially where the church is, it's two miles from one of the best surf beaches on the East Coast. We started off with 200 students, and within six weeks, we're running about 1,000 students. God started to move, not me. God started to rock this place. 
One thing you find out quickly, out of the 1,000 students that came, 1,000 of them were surfers. 1,000. They all surf. People would go up there with me, and it was a cool experience because when you walk in the church, everybody would go, hey, what's that smell? And I would always have to tell them, it's suntan lotion. Like, that's the church. I mean, you would see college students walk in from the beach. There were surfboards out in the hallway. They would come to the service, grab their surfboards, go right back. Out of the 1,000 college students that surf, 500 of them were surf instructors. It's what they do for a living. I saw God move in such an amazing way, and it was cool. But after about a year, I just got sick of hearing about surfing. To the point where I said this, can somebody just teach me how to surf? And, you know, of course, all their hands went up. I picked one dude. You do it. He comes up to me, and he was like, dude, I promise you, I'm the best teacher out here. Before we're done, you will catch a wave. That's how he put it. I was with him for six hours the next Tuesday before we started. He was like, D- you might not catch a wave. Like, he's like, you're just no good. So my question to you is this, being in the middle of Texas, how many of you honestly, don't, don't mess around, how many of you honestly have surfed before? Raise your hands. Okay, those with your hands raised, we're about to have a moment that nobody else is going to understand. You ready? So I'm going to look at you and say this. I wish I could explain to every one of you what it was like the first time I rode a wave. I cannot even explain it. He kept telling me, stop trying to stand up. The water will pull you up. It will pull you out. And I still remember the exhilaration of when I was actually surfing. It was such an amazing experience. And that night, my opening illustration was not like, you know, the royal baby. You know what my opening illustration was? I stood up in front of a thousand people and said this, I am now a surfer. you think I'm crazy? I easily got a three or four minute standing ovation for saying that. (laughs) No, I'm being serious. It was a long one. I kept going, sit down, sit down. And I noticed something. All of a sudden, the next six weeks, things changed. See, for a year, I was, oh man, we like Wade. He tells funny stories. We like Wade. He goes and eats dollar tacos with us when we're done. We like Wade. And then all of a sudden, I started to notice the same thousand started to, more of them brought their Bibles. More of them were taking notes. Like, I didn't even understand what was going on. I wasn't preaching any different, and then all of a sudden it hit me. They all of a sudden were more engaged with me because I cared about what they care about. I learned how to connect with them. You see, if you ever are convicted to reach people, you have to understand what Paul is saying I do whatever I can to understand them for no other reason than they hear the greatest message of all. He said conviction leads to connection. And if you get that far, number three, then you need to be careful how you live. I mean, that's when you get responsibility, right? Now, if you still got your Bibles open, if you do, if if, if not, trust me, I'll just read this to you. But if you back up before chapter 9, He precedes chapter 9 with something, and at the very end of chapter 8, he starts it off like this in verse 9. He says this, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. And then in the last verse of the chapter, he says this, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to stumble and fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Hey, that's a huge statement, by the way. Understand what Paul is saying. In the exercise of your freedom, do you remember what he said? 
in that permissible statement, and all things are permissible for me, as you're exercising that, be careful that you don't cause people to stumble and fall. And then he says this, if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again as long as I live. Listen, if you know the backstory, here's what's happening. He's trying to reach people that don't eat meat. I'll take it further. They don't eat unclean meat. Now, that's a problem for somebody from Alabama because that's what we call barbecue. Okay, I'm just saying. That's what we call bacon. That's unclean meat. He's trying to reach people, and here's what he's saying. In the exercise of my freedom, I'm trying to reach people that don't eat unclean meat, and they don't eat meat. And here's what he says. So if they're not going to hear my message, then I'll never eat meat again as long as I live. Whoa. In that one statement, Paul says this, my calling is bigger than my comfort. Do you understand what Paul's saying? He's saying this. It's permissible for me to eat meat. It's not sin if I eat meat. God's not even mad at me if I don't eat meat. But if those people aren't going to listen to the message of the gospel, then forget it. I just won't eat meat again as long as I live. He puts a stake in the ground and says this. It's not about what you think. It's about going further and having responsibility to realize what they think. I know it sounds odd to you, but I'm going to say it to you in two ways. Um, Early in my ministry, I did something by accident that I will never do again. So I'll just explain it to you, right? I was trying to do an illustration. I'd been at a camp, youth camp, for four or five days. They, They were trusting me at this point. And I was going to do an illustration. And I had a table out there. And I brought out in a bag, but I took it out, and had a tall boy Budweiser right there. I had an illustration. I was trying to make a point. The problem was, and you're getting to know me by now, I got so into my sermon, completely forgot about that. I'd been preaching for like 15 minutes, and there were 500 people in the room, and they're all just kind of doing this. They were doing that. And finally, I just find, 15 minutes into it, I go, hey, what's the deal? And there's always that one 15-year-old kid, you got a beer up there. Okay? <laughs> I was thrown off, and I look over, and I was like, oh, man, okay, I totally missed my, my illustration I was going to give. And then finally, it hit me while I was doing that. I, I missed that illustration, so I said it like this. I go, hey, man, y'all, I was going to do an illustration, but I forgot, and, and I can't really backtrack from what I was doing, so... Man, y'all seem to be so consumed with that. I go, can I ask y'all a question? And they all just kind of sat there, and I go, how many of you, even though I haven't talked about it, are under the assumption that I don't drink? And all of them were like, well, of course, that's what we think. I was like, oh, okay. So, so you knew that was a prop. And they go, yeah. So let me ask y'all a question. Can anybody tell me what I've preached on in the last 15 minutes? And they all just sat there. And I go, no, 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 let me make it easy for you. Can anybody just tell me the scripture I read? Just the chapter. And they all just sat there, and not one person out of 500 people knew. And here's what I figured out. I picked up the beer and said this, then maybe it's true that it's hard to have a beer in one hand, a Bible in the other, and then hear this. Now hear me when I'm saying this. I'm not trying to get on you about drinking or not drinking or anything like that. I'm just trying to say to you, there's a responsibility that you and I have that actually goes further than what you think is sin. 
Paul says, it's okay for me to do this. The Bible doesn't say thou shalt not eat meat, but if they're not going to listen, I'm going to be careful how I live. Here's the other way I'll put it. When I was in eighth grade, it's going to sound really weird to you, but my, my middle school, public middle school, we had like the greatest school lunches of all time. I know that sounds weird to you. We had three ladies that thought it was God's will to outcook the other person. So I was in a class before lunch, and, and we would, a bunch of athletes were in there, and as soon as the bell would ring, we would try to get there as fast as we could, because, I mean, sometimes you could sweet-talk the lady into giving you an extra piece of fried chicken, man, it was good. And there was this one day the bell rang, and I was, I was first. I was running down the hallway, and it was rocking. And I thought, I'm going to make it, this is good. And the next thing I know, I was in midair. When I say midair, I was like flying like Superman. <laughs> and I figured out that the dude behind me didn't want me to win, so he like slid my legs out from under me and I was just literally flying. I hit the ground and you know, the linoleum floors just been mopped and nice. I slid for 30 feet. You know, the doors that are locked coming this way, I slammed into those doors. Now I know y'all are all going, Oh, in that moment, I thought this is the coolest thing that's ever happened in my life. <laughs> I mean, I was 13 years old, right? And I remember in that moment thinking, I have to do this to somebody else at some point before I die. <laughs> and I'm going to be honest with you, because I'm just going to share with you. Never thought about that ever again until like a year ago. So I'm in my front yard with my two daughters. <laughs> Listen, it gets much worse. But I promise I got a point. I'm out there playing with them in the front yard, and out of nowhere, you've heard this before, you hear the ding, 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 and the popsicle man's coming in my neighborhood. Don't even know why I said it. I'm standing next to my seven-year-old at the time, and I go, last person to get to the popsicle truck doesn't get a popsicle. <laughs> and she was down playing the driveway. She jumps up, looks at me, starts running, don't even know why it happened. I went, eighth grade, eighth grade, eighth grade, <laughs> first time. And as soon as she ran, I put my foot out like that right there. <laughs> Listen, now follow me now. I thought this was going to be cool. It, do you know, the guys in here understand what I'm saying. Do you know when you're trying to trip somebody and just do that, when they, they, they give you a look of, what's wrong with you? That's what I'm going for, but it's not what happened. I caught her foot just right, and she got airborne. The problem was this, when she goes in the air... She turned and looked at me. <laughs> listen, I want you to follow me because listen, that look has messed me up for a year. I'm having nightmares because do you know what I'm talking? Do you know how you can look at somebody, have a complete conversation and not say one word? It's just that look of, she had a conversation with her face. She goes in the air and she turned and this was her look. She looked and went. And I'm going to tell you what her face said to me. Her face in midair said this. What are you doing? You are my father. Her face went a little bit further and said this. What's wrong with you? And then it got worse because I, the face said this. I'm going to tell mom. And then her face went a little bit further and she said this. In case you don't know it, I'm about to hit the concrete. And I'm going to skin my knee. 
and it's going to hurt, and I'm going to scream, cry, and yell, and I'm not going to like you for a long time. Now, I know half of y'all are asking, how long was she in the air? Like, let's just call it 42 seconds, right? Like, when she looked at me and had that conversation, I looked back at her. Her face was this. My face was this. And I talked back to her, and here's what my face said to her. I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't even know why I did that. I think it's because guys are dumb, and I'm going to teach you that the rest of your life. And then I said this, I think you're right. I need help. I just tripped a seven-year-old girl. And then I went further with my face, and I said this, I'm going to tell mom before you do. I mean, that's how messed up I am over this. And then I went further and said this, with my face, I know you're about to hit the ground. I do. And I know you're going to skin your knee, and you're going to be upset at me. And you're going to scream and you're going to cry and you're going to be mad for a long time. But I also want you to know this. I'm going to get on the ground with you. I'm going to hold you. I'm going to listen to you cry. I'm going to tell you I'm sorry. And I'm going to promise you this right now. I will never, ever do that to you again. Here's my point. When I reached my foot out and tried to do this, and you get it. I was trying to be funny, but it wasn't funny to her. The decisions you and I make, the words we say in front of this world, we either lead people toward Christ or away from him every single time. He said, be careful how you live. Take responsibility for what God has for you, because in the end, all that matters is Jesus, not you. And the last thing is this, just for the sake of hurry, there's a calling, right? There's a calling on our lives. That's where he finishes out this chapter. He says it like this, do you not know that in a race the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. He said everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do what we do to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, he said don't run aimlessly. He said, I don't fight like a man beating the air. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, do you want to know our calling? You want to know what your calling is in life as a Christian? Your calling in life as a Christian is to give it all you have all the time. He's saying this. These people out there train to like get a medal in the Olympics that doesn't even matter in the end. But you and I, how much more should we be training in having strict I mean, confidence in ourselves, strict training to say, God, we want to be who you've called us to be. He says, do this. If you're going to run the race, then try to win. I love it when Paul says that. He said, run as though you are going to win. It's almost like Paul is saying this. Hey, you know what? I might not win, but I'm going to try. I mean, it's weird to me. I've run 19 marathons now. The weirdest thing is this. They've never given the prizes out before the race starts. They've never just gone, well, you know what? This girl's the fastest. We're just going to give you the trophy now. It's weird. You know what they say? Let's see how you are. Let's see how you finish. Our calling is to finish what we have started. He says, listen, if I'm going to run, I'm going to run like I'm going to win. He says, I don't swing aimlessly. He says, if I'm going to swing, I'm going to hit something. Give it all you have in the Christian life because in the end, what matters is Jesus. 
I'll end it like this so we can get back into worship. I stopped playing golf a long time ago. Don't ask me why. Just, let's just say I was a horrible golfer, right? That's partly true. But I'll still never forget the last time I played golf ever. And it's going to illustrate this right here. I'm out playing with some guy. We're in Florida, and the guy was really good. And I felt so bad because he was so patient with me. I mean, this guy's probably a scratch golfer. I mean, he could be on the PGA. And I literally probably shot 118 that day. It was horrible. But he was, all, he was so encouraging to me. And we got to the last hole, the 18th hole. Still remember it like it was yesterday. And we are probably one shot off of hitting the green. And he gets up there. And I could see this guy. Man, he just had so much thought going into it. And he hit it. And the flag's right there. And he puts it just right near the hole. And I was just so amazed. And I asked him a question I never thought about before. If I'd asked it before, I probably would still be playing golf. I looked at him and I go, hey, do you actually think about stuff before you hit the ball? He looks at me and goes, well, of course. I go, what do you think about? He goes, well, I'm thinking about what club I got to hit because depending on how many yards you are away from the hold is really going to depend on what club you use. I go, really? He goes, then you kind of feed the wind and which way the wind's blowing. And then he said this, if you notice the green, it's moving from right to left. So he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to shoot it and try to get it on the right of the hole. He said, I'm going to lay it up. You've heard that before. I'm going to lay it up and try to get it to where I can one put it in. And I looked at him and I went, you think about all of that just now? He goes, yeah. I was like, wow. He goes, what do you think about? <laughs> and I said, man, I'm embarrassed to tell you now. And he goes, no, seriously, what do you think? And I go, I don't know. I, I feel bad. And he goes, what's that? I go, you really want to know what I think? Kind of like going back to London. He goes, yeah, what do you think? I go, I'm a real simple guy. Like, that flag is there because it's like sitting on top of the hole, right? He said, yeah, the only thing I think is you see the hole? Yeah, I'm shooting for that. That's it. And he started laughing and he said, you know what? I might be a better golfer if I did that. And here's what I thought. In golf, especially on the PGA Tour, you can win millions of dollars laying it up. You can win millions of dollars in a tournament playing it safe. God's will is not for you and me to lay it up. It's to give it everything we got. If you're going to run, try to win. If you're going to try to share Jesus with somebody, give it everything you got. If you want to disciple somebody, don't miss a night of it. Give it everything you have that is what our calling is. That's why we worship. That's why we do what we do. Because in the end, all that matters is Jesus. And that was my hope for us to understand tonight. Just bow with me just for a second. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.